Well, everyone, good morning and welcome to Res City. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Res City, and we are kicking off a uh, new sermon series, which I'm going to introduce here in just a second. Um, uh, thank you for being here this morning. We're excited to do that. I want to welcome you and whatever soul you have left after winter did its best to try to steal it from you this morning um, after, after this last week. Um, but yeah, it's good to be here. Uh, let me pray and we'll get into our, our sermon this morning. Lord, thank you for being with us uh, this morning. Thank you for gathering with us no matter where we're at right now as we, we come into this morning, Lord, as we gather in your presence. Um, we just thank you for being with us, God. No matter what we go through, we know you're with us. We know, as we'll talk about today, your grace is with us. Um, your spirit is with us, God. You are uh, helping us. You're making us new. You're leading us towards life, Lord, and, and we thank you for that. Do that this morning, we pray, as we study your word, as we fellowship with one another, as we, um, as we worship, um, as we take communion even, Lord, in just a little bit, um, and all those activities, Lord, we pray that you'd be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I know a lot of people who go to Red City work for kind of really big companies. It's one of the things about the Twin Cities is there's some really large companies, and you probably end up uh, sometimes working with people who are maybe very, very driven uh, towards what they do. And, uh, you know, you know when, when people have a drive to be successful, to be maybe at the top of their field, to be really good, they'll kind of look to any resource that they can find to help them do that. So I know sometimes, like, I'm a big sports fan, I'll read coaches or general managers or something, and they'll be like, yeah, this offseason I spent, uh, I, I read a biography of some like famous successful person and tried to learn a lot from what they do. Um, people will sometimes study the patterns of successful people to try to find things to emulate. Um, and, know, and there's books like the, you know, uh, the seven habits of highly effective people, right? It's supposed to be these seven habits or patterns that people have in their lives that lead to lots of success. And we're always looking for that stuff like that, especially people who are very interested um, in being successful themselves. But when you scour lists like these um, of like, you know, things that famous or successful people do or did, you find some weird stuff sometimes. So I thought I'd share some weirder ones that I found as I was looking through uh, the, the internet preparing for this. So Voltaire, I don't know if you've heard of him, he was a very famous French writer and philosopher. He drank around 50 cups of coffee a day. And he lived to be 83, so, you know, it wasn't the worst thing ever. I don't know, maybe for those of you who think you need to cut down on the coffee you drink, have you ever considered maybe you need to drink more coffee? <laughs> it's just saying, just throwing that out there. Um, author Charles Dickens, um, Tale of Two Cities, I think, was, was his most famous book. Um, to train his brain on critical thinking, he would go to the morgue and try to solve murders. Now today, like any other normal person, he probably would just listen to murder mystery podcasts instead and try to train his brain doing that instead. Uh, some, some people who are considered very successful will wear the same clothes every day. Um, so presumably, so they don't have to put any extra brain power into thinking about what to wear each day. One of the most famous examples of this is Steve Jobs. Uh, you can see he really took this very seriously. And he did not care what you think of his turtleneck or his dad jeans, okay? Um, this is maybe the craziest one I ran into. It's by a guy named Yoshira Nakamatsu, um, and he was the inventor of the floppy disk. 
If you don't know what that is, don't worry. Um, it was a very important thing for a long time. Um, the karaoke machine, the digital clock, and more. So he's, he invented a lot of stuff. He would do this thing called self-drowning, where he would submerge his head in water until he was almost out of air. And his idea was that he was depriving his brain of oxygen to, quote, push it to the limit. And he claimed that being close to death helped him to visualize his best inventions. So... If you try that and hurt yourself, do not sue me for giving you that idea, please, okay? Um, but apparently it worked for that guy. Now, now, who knows if these things actually contributed to people's successes or not, right? It's kind of hard to actually know if these things really were behind what made them who they were um, or who they are. But the, the point is that people have certain patterns like this, and these patterns can lead them to accomplish uh, their goals um, and, and, more importantly, maybe even make them who they are, right? We can identify these patterns, and, and those are really important. I bring all this up because I want to ask us this question, and this is what we're going to be kind of thinking about throughout this sermon series. What is the pattern that God has that makes him God? What pattern does he use to accomplish his goals? How does he get stuff done? What's the pattern that he operates out of to do that stuff in his work of making all things new? We talk about, we celebrate every Sunday morning when we gather together. Well, we're going to talk about that in this series. And so primarily, this is really a series to try to help us to understand who God is better by exploring his character um, and looking at his pattern from different stories in Scripture. And so as we look back on the stories of God's dealings with people, I really think one clear pattern we find fuels God's action and motivation and how he gets stuff done, and that is grace. All right, so we're going to be talking, the series is called According to Grace, and it's a study of God's pattern to accomplish um, his, his goals, to act constantly in this pattern of grace, according to grace. And that phrase, according to grace, it comes from an idea I had studying uh, Romans 4.16 uh, last fall. It's a phrase that Paul uses in there. And um, I thought it was a cool idea to just go through other Old Testament stories. Um, we'll, we'll talk about this today. Paul goes through one person's story in, in that passage to talk about how God is acting according to grace. I thought it would be cool to maybe do that with some other stories as well, to kind of just see how God is operating according to grace and hopefully refresh ourselves each week as we do that. So we'll kind of look at different, different stories every single week throughout this series uh, doing that. Today what I want to do is I want to set this series up. I want to start by asking, what is grace? What do we mean by grace, actually? And then where do we see God start to identify himself as having this pattern of acting according to grace? Uh, I want us to dig into the story that Paul uses in Romans 4 and then end by talking about what that means for us as we try to uh, delve into it to be refreshed and learn from it, okay? So, so that's going to be kind of the, the structure of the sermon today. So first off, let's start with this first question. What is grace. Like, what does scripture even mean by that? And I'm going to share a story I think is actually helpful uh, to understand this idea of grace. So back in 2014, I was doing this uh, ministry uh, training program, kind of preparing for ministry, doing what we're doing now uh, in a church, and and it was um, support raised, but also full-time. So I didn't have time to work a job. Um, And I think it it was in March or something of that year, and I was almost out of money. 
of money I'd raised, and I wasn't really sure where I was going to get it. I didn't really have any good leads. Um, I didn't really have any more buttons I could press. I kind of was running out of those. And I was running out of other good options to make any money, really, other than like selling all the plasma in my body to BioLife Services. Um, I actually still have a hole in my arm from all the plasma I donated in college. And I'm always afraid that people will see this little hole and think I was using some other needle um, in that arm for a different reason that I'll let you speculate on yourself. But anyway, one day, I had a guy who I was co-leading a Bible study uh, with um, that... But I, I didn't know this guy very well, and I actually just had been placed in this, leading this Bible study with him. It wasn't necessarily a guy I was uh, been friends with or knew very well at all. And I'll, I'll be honest, I actually didn't know if the guy liked me very much always. Um, he was kind of a hard-to-read person, I thought. So anyway, he asked me to get some coffee with him one time, and I figured it was to talk about something to do with, with this Bible study we were leading. And, and we get there, and he tells me it has nothing to do with what I thought. I was totally floored by this. He told me he'd been praying about what to do with his monthly tithe. And he, and he said God had told him to give it all to me for one entire month. And, and this was not a small sum of money. This guy has a, had a really good job at the time. And it meant his monthly tithe was some serious money. And actually was enough to kind of cover the costs for, that I would need basically to live for the next few months until I got out of this and could kind of start working and making some money again. So I was totally floored because this was totally unexpected. And I, I couldn't believe it. And the thing is, it didn't really have anything to do with me. As far as I know, he wasn't aware of the situation that I was in. Um, and it wasn't like he was like, this guy's so great. I, I mean, he just felt God told him to do it. Right? It really had nothing to do with me. And I think the, maybe the coolest thing about it is it actually totally changed my relationship with this guy. Like, I no longer had this question, like, you know, what does he think of me? Um, I was actually really excited to lead Bible study with him. It sort of transformed the relationship going forward. And, and even now, I'm still grateful to him. I think this is a great example of grace. It's not just getting, you know, not getting a punishment or consequence that we might deserve, right? Though it is often that, too. It's unexpectedly getting a gift, exactly what we need, maybe even more than what we need, when there's no direct line to anything that we've done or not that conditions it, right? In fact, sometimes, or maybe often, it's given without the person even asking for it um, before we've even had a chance to ask, and it has nothing to do with us. It doesn't pay attention to the good or the bad that we might bring to the table, right? To maybe think we earned it in some way. Uh, that's not the point at all. It really doesn't pay attention to those things. It's unconditioned. It's not a reward for anything, right? Usually in Scripture, the recipient of grace is often very unworthy of any reward from God. We just finished up this series on sin, right, where we delved into why that's the case, right? But even if we were worthy, that would not be the reason that we get grace. We get it simply because God chooses to give it to us. And in the ancient world, the word grace, charis in Greek, uh, a New Testament scholar named John Barclay points out, it also refers to the sort of relationship that's created out of the giving of the gift. It, re it, re it refers to the person's attitude of gratitude and their thanks that's created out of that, Change, sort of changing maybe even relationships going forward. It creates this sort of circular movement centered around the gift given from, to a favored person. It creates this gratitude in return. And it doesn't, it doesn't stop with the giving of the gifts. So this idea of grace is, 
I really think fundamentally it's at the heart of who God is. As we study scripture, we find grace and this desire for the circular movement, this relationship that gets created out of it all the time. It's a key part of the self-identification of God, actually. Even when the word isn't used, we see God acting in this way. And I think God is very aware of this about himself. Right? So here's an important example. There's a moment in, in the book of Exodus where uh, a guy named Moses, um, he asks God if God would show him his glory. Now, I don't know what Moses expected when he asked God to do that. I don't know what you would expect if you asked God, hey, can you show me your glory? Show me what makes you worthy of praise and honor. Um, you, might, you might be expecting a cool magic show, right? Like something, I would picture like something like Disney's Magic Kingdom, right? Like before at night when the fireworks are going off, like a, a display of power of some kind, right? But God doesn't do that when he shows Moses his glory, Instead, he has Moses hide behind a big rock on a mountain, so he can't even see anything that's going on. And God declares his name and character to Moses. That is what God finds to be most fundamental about his glory. Okay, and so he says this to Moses. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, with Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents, the third and fourth generation. All right, so did you notice it? The first thing that makes up his glory, what makes him who he is, is this compassionate grace. That's where God starts. Right? It might not be where, where you would start when you think about what makes God God, but for him, this is what he thinks defines him. Right? It's what he apparently finds that makes up his glory, that he is constantly acting in compassion and grace. Now let me give a little note on that last part, right? That part that about punishment, or really about it's about God's justice, is what that's just talking about. Um, I think we might recoil. We might think, oh, that can't line up with God being full of grace. And apparently God doesn't see that as being the case, right? It's, it's, God does not do cheap grace. I think that's what this is telling us, right? It's, he doesn't do charity to a homeless person and then drive away knowing he'll never see this person ever again. He is desiring some sort of transformative relationship to grow out of the giving of his, of his grace. It doesn't condition the giving of the grace in the first place, but it's a call for us to respond, not in apathy to God's grace, but to really to take it seriously. And I want to talk a little bit later about our proper response to God's grace a, a little bit later in the sermon. Um, but when we don't take it seriously, we find God is not afraid to give us over to the consequences of treating his grace in a cheap way, right? He makes sure his, his, his justice is also part of his glory. Okay, but I think it's really important that we understand, going back to what we said earlier, punishment is not how God gets things done in the world. The cross, as always, is the place where we should start as the ultimate picture of God's character. And we don't see God getting his purposes accomplished on the cross through Jesus, using punishment and force and coercion to accomplish his goal. Instead, we're seeing him use forgiveness, mercy, sacrifice, and compassionate grace to set people free and transform them. 
God does not go around canceling everyone who wrongs him, cutting them out of his life, doing what he can to ruin their day as much as possible because they've ruined his, right? He will warn people of the consequences, but he holds off, sometimes for centuries, before he actually lets those come to pass. And he continually offers new opportunities, often even after someone has experienced some consequences for sin. When they might th- we might think of them as a lost cause, God does not see them that way because his pattern is to work according to grace. He gets things done. He affects his big picture will according to grace. And we see this in the book of Romans, talking about the story of Abraham. So I want to spend the rest of our time in this sermon kind of living in this Roman, Romans passage and talking about the, 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 the story of Abraham and how that for Paul is a picture of, of God working according to grace. Now, I apologize. I'm going to be dropping us into a bit of a, a dense part of the letter, okay? So you have to bear with me, but I'm going to catch you up to speed on it a little bit. Basically, Paul's responding to an idea that is kind of floating around um, the, about the gospel of Jesus. And he's, you know, the idea is that in order to earn God's favor or his grace or his salvation, really any gift he gave, people must perform uh, what's called Torah. It's the, the Jewish law um, that he had given to his people, the Jews. Right? The people promoting this argument, like they knew this scripture passage in Exodus we just read. They probably didn't have any, anything against the idea of God being gracious, right? But they figured, there has to be some criteria, right? There can't be, it can't just be that God gives us away willy-nilly, right? There has to be some limit for grace. That's how the world has to work, right? Shouldn't it work that way? You give good stuff to the people who show themselves to be worthy of it and withhold giving it to those who don't, right? That surely that's included in God's grace, You wouldn't want to throw away a scholarship by giving it to someone who seems like they would probably just waste it, right? That would be stupid. You wouldn't give your grace of your gift to that type of person. You wouldn't hire someone who has that, maybe that troubling Facebook post from 10 years ago, right? They don't seem worthy of being hired. Look at Santa, right? Santa is holly and jolly and he's full of Christmas cheer, but even he doesn't have enough Christmas spirit to give gifts to naughty kids, right? It just seems like basic, a basic idea of how the world should work. And look, God even gave us a law and told us to follow it. So this must be the way that we receive God's grace. We should have to earn it and merit it, become worthy in some way in order to get it. And Paul says, well, hang on for a second here, right? And he, he goes back to Abraham. The law was given to Moses, but something had happened before this in the person of Abraham that Paul thinks we should start at because that's the start of the relationship. So Paul says this, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way, right? Uh, Moses wasn't the first Hebrew who God had entered into covenant with. The one who had gotten the law was not the very first one. So we should start where God starts and look at how God interacts with that person instead and look at what God's pattern is there. Is it on the basis of merit and work and worthiness and some record of perfect or non-cancelable behavior? Or is it in some other pattern? And when Paul looks back at Abraham's story, what he finds is that God delights in bringing grace where it seems the most hopeless. That's where everything had started. 
And so that must be God's pattern, right? This is not just a story of one man. I think that's what's so interesting about this. It's not just a one-off story about a guy named Abraham. It's really the start of a whole nation, of a whole relationship and covenant between God and people. It has to do with Moses, Paul, and every other Jew that came from this line. And as we'll see, it includes us as well. And this family, this people that God had created, was central for his plans for the world itself. When we meet them, Abraham and his wife Sarah, who's also included in the story, they're very old and they can't have kids. They're in, Sarah's actually infertile and really they're not that especially important of a group of people, it seems like. Now, Abraham's not as bad as, you know, we, as other people we might find in Scripture, right? But he's also not like a shining example of courage and morality either. There's one story where he, 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 he's scared of some king and so he tells the king, Sarah's not his wife but his sister and he can kind of do whatever he wants with her. Um, and another point, because Sarah can't have kids, they force a slave girl to have a kid for them. They don't seem especially deserving of God's favor, right? They can't even offer God the one kid that is needed to sort of fulfill this plan that God seems to have. They, they can't even do it, right? Let alone a whole family. And for Paul, that's actually the point. That's what makes this all so important, okay? Paul says in verses 17 to 22, um, the scriptures tell us that God said to Abraham, I made you the father of many nations. But how did this happen? It happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. You will be the father of an entire nation. God had promised him that. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though as, at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. Paul's saying that Sarah's womb, which for decades had been unable to produce life on its own, and for sure at this age now, being around 100 years old, all chances of having kids were gone. Paul says that despite that being the fact, it, it does produce life. God gives them the son, even in very old age, even in an infertile couple. Paul sees this as an act of grace, fitting God's character and establishing a pattern for who God is. And this pattern of bringing life out of hopeless situations is so powerful, it can stir an infertile womb and overcome our stupidity and our failure and our sin and still accomplish God's purposes. And this is what I mean when I say that God gets what he does done, what he, get, he gets what he wants done through his grace. It's not just his disposition, it's also his method. It's also the way he wants to accomplish it. Okay? And this is important for Paul. Abraham's best moment, his best response to this gift of grace is after God had promised him this, is to simply believe and trust that God would do. He would follow through on what he said he would do to give them a child despite their barrenness. This trust is seen by God as righteousness, which means walking in God's way, being right with God, positionally. 
And Paul looks back on this whole story and he sees a different pattern in operation than the common sense one, where the worthy get good stuff and those who aren't worthy don't get good stuff. And he concludes this, For the promises to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir to the world was not through the law or any other way that Abraham could have earned it for himself or deserved it or merited it, but through the righteousness of faith. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, in accordance with the pattern of God, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. God had come to Abraham before there even was a law, before there was some way to measure his worthiness in terms of how much he could please God. And simply according to grace, God gave Abraham and Sarah the gift of relationship and a promise and sparked a womb. And all this grace asked of Abraham was to live in faithful trust. All of this is establishing a pattern, all right? A pattern for God and a pattern for us. And this is what Paul says next. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit, it was recorded for our benefit too. Assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to make us right with God. For Paul, the pattern that's established is God acts in grace and we act in trust. It was at the heart of the story of this family, and it was how God was inviting others to become part of the family in Paul's time as well. He saw God doing this again and again through Jesus and the spread of the gospel, uh, even to non-Jews, right? To people who not only like, didn't follow the law, they, the law, they had never even heard of it, right? Their ability to measure up to the worthiness scale that a lot of people would have had for how to receive God's grace and favor, they completely flunked the test. Yet Paul saw them again and again getting God's spirit, getting God's presence, getting his forgiveness, believing in Jesus, believing he was the ultimate gift of God and following after him anyway. This was the gospel that Paul saw every day, that he preached to others, that he'd experienced himself. Now, God is the same today and every day. This is not just true in Abraham's time or Moses' time or Paul's time. It's also true in our time as well. It continues to be God's pattern. He is still working according to grace. But I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is if by faith, by trust, we'll choose to notice that, to acknowledge it, all right? And so that's what I want us to reflect on as we end the sermon today. God's pattern is grace. Are we going to make our pattern trust in that grace? Okay, a lot of people never set foot in a church. They never hear about this grace. And a lot of people sit in the church maybe their whole lives, and they still never truly hear about this grace, Right? And so sadly, I think often this pattern of God to work according to grace does go unnoticed. Now, we want to make sure at Red City that that is not true for anybody here. Okay, We want to make sure that you can't ever say you've never heard of this grace. You've never been invited to follow after this pattern of God's grace. Okay, But actually, that can become a problem too, I think, because it can become too familiar to us that we kind of gloss over it. We start to assume it and not actually live in it, all right? And I think that's maybe the the bigger thing that we can struggle with a lot of times, right? I have faith, right? Blah, blah, blah. I know I'm supposed to have trust in God, but 
yeah, okay, cool. I'm going to go and still try to work and earn and merit and put stuff on God that he's not put on us, right? This professed familiarity often covers up the fact that even those who believe it don't really start by trusting God a lot of times, right? Have you ever noticed how like, maybe you end up trusting God, but it's like, it's number 10 on the list of other things that you tried to do first when you found yourself in a position where you were struggling or you needed help, right? Where you, you felt your weakness or your limitation, right? And, and trusting God was only something you did after the first nine things on the list seemed like they didn't work, right? Why do we do that? I think it could be that we, we don't trust God as much as we trust ourselves, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. It could also be that we fear that God isn't going to act towards us in a pattern of grace, right? And that could be for a couple reasons. It could be that we don't trust God's power. I think this is kind of sneaky because it's not that we intentionally tell ourselves this, but we start to, uh, we start to think, we, start to, we notice what we do a lot of times, and we start to think that's how stuff gets done. And we're not focusing on the places we've received grace. We've received stuff that we haven't deserved or earned or, 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 or been being rewarded for something. And so what we often become is confessional Christ followers, but functional atheists. We pray, but the real God we expect to solve our problems is often us. Now, like I said, we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. It's going through the story of someone trying to solve a God-sized problem really on his own. And we'll see how that goes, and then we'll see how God steps in and acts in grace after that. Okay, so it could be that. We don't trust God's power. It could also be that we don't trust God's character, right? Maybe we don't trust that he's first and foremost defined by grace. Maybe we really start to think he's actually defined by something else. Right? Maybe we think God is like we are so often and the people around us are so often. Right? We're acting in a certain other way, not acting in the pattern of grace. And this is really subtle. And, as, and to, you know, I honestly think this is the kind of thing we're constantly having to ask ourselves, like to figure out why are we struggling in this area. And there's a lot of ways we can do it. And I thought you know, today I would talk about a, a one tool that I think can be kind of helpful. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever used the Enneagram. Um, I think it can be a helpful, I think it definitely has its limits, um, and I'm not at all an expert in it, but I do think it can be a helpful tool sometimes because it helps us understand often what our fears and motivations are, right? Deep down, operating in the back of our minds, especially um, depending on the type that you have, um, there is some ideal, there's some sort of uh, way we're trying to live, something we're trying to manifest. It, it's some fear that's often driving us in all the stuff that we do, that we're living out of, that we're trying to perform in some way to meet it. And it's what we're afraid people are sort of silently uh, judging us against, and it's what we expect uh, from them a lot of times as well. And so we can try to attain something for ourselves based on these fears. But a lot of time, I think what we end up doing is projecting that onto God too. And thinking whatever our core motivation or fears or whatever we expect, other, however we expect other people to act out of that, we put that under God too. And we're trying to perform for people or God based out of these things. And so we even come to church sometimes, right? We sing songs about God and his grace. We talk about it. But a lot of times it's going in one ear and out the other because really what we're thinking about is something related to that fear that we can't get out of our heads somewhere where maybe we feel inadequate or we feel exposed, right? We have this longing for something and we're, you know, we're afraid everything's going to fall apart because of it. Now, 
Now, I'm not going to get into a long discussion of the Enneagram and what, what types there are if you never have taken the test. Like, I'd encourage you to do that on your own, maybe. If, if you're looking for a tool to help you kind of figure out ways you might be projecting something onto God or trying to measure up to some standard that, you know, is not the one that we find God operating according to, right? Um, but there are a bunch of different ways in which people act out of these, right? It could be that you fear you're not good, and you're trying to be good. It could be that you feel not loved, and you're trying to, uh, trying to become a person that is lovable. It could be that you feel you're not respected, and you need to be someone who is respectable. It could be you feel powerless or incompetent, and you need to become that. Um, I'm an Enneagram 9, and I'm still thinking about this. Like I said, I think this is kind of a process, um, how I project this onto God. But I know for one of, one of my things, like I, an Enneagram 9 is fears uh, having their presence not be noticed or, or not be known, that to fear that their presence doesn't matter, that things keep you know, moving on, and I feel like I'm giving up my preferences because I want to keep the harmony going. Enneagram 9s are the ones who are super afraid of conflict. Um, and so they give up their preferences, and they don't, they don't want to be noticed for kind of rocking the boat, but they're also afraid that their presence doesn't matter, I think, because of it. And there's this deep longing to have that be noticed. Right? And I, I see this sometimes feed into my pastoring, right? In order to have my presence noticed, because I'm so afraid it doesn't, I'm always asking myself questions like, am I, am I working hard enough? Am I sufficiently pouring all of myself into this? Am I consistently, when it comes to preaching, am I preaching the very best sermon I possibly can every single week? Am I getting good feedback from people about my ministry? Do people like me enough? Um, will they be mad if they find out I, you know, didn't work 100% as hard as I possibly could on everything I did? Uh, is there enough success that I'm seeing because of my presence so I can feel noticed and loved? Am I even the right kind of person to be doing this? Like, these are questions I ask myself. And I start to live my day-to-day life as if this is what God expects of me, too. And I start to get mad at God sometimes when I feel like he doesn't notice me right? And I, and, I, and I think that that's his pattern, that I have to be noticed by him, that he should reward me and give me acknowledgement for trying, uh, tr- trying so hard to make my presence matter. I'm not saying it's wrong to feel these fears um, or to get the assurances from other people that we might be looking for, but often we're trying to measure up to these things because it's what we fear, and we think it must be a hinge point for God, too. All that God has said to us is, here's my grace. You didn't merit it. In fact, you often act totally unworthy of it. But it's yours through trust. It meets our fears, whatever they might be, right? He says, here's my new life. Here's my presence, my approval, my righteousness, my notice, my attention, my enjoyment of your presence, my security, my power, whatever it is that you fear you don't have, my grace is supplying for you. I want to start a relationship with you where you will take this grace, you will trust me, you will walk in it and in this family that I've created solely out of my grace. That's all that God has asked us to do. And we have to constantly remind ourselves that that's all that there is to it. We do not need to project onto God the things that we're afraid of. Living in grace and not out of fear by trusting God, it's a process, right? And really, it's the process of getting to know God, right? Trust is formed over time. 
Just like getting to know anybody else, right? You have to spend time around them. You have to see them act. You have to experience the pattern of their action in order to feel safe in it. And we see God tell us that he's full of grace, and we can hear stories that will encourage us, but really, we have to take him up on that and walk in his grace and trust in him in order for us to find ourselves truly uh, developing that trust, to know his character, right? And the church, the family of Abraham, this is supposed to be a place where it's modeled, but unfortunately, it does come in bits and pieces. We are not consistent in living out the call to be graceful ourselves all the time. And so what we really need to do is have a life-giving connection with God, walking in his spirit daily, being in his presence on a regular basis. This, I think, is very vital for us to understand who God is, to really see this pattern that he works in according to grace. To go back to that over and over again really is an act of trust. It really is. Even when it's not easy on some certain day, even if we don't feel like it. But I am telling you, what we see in Scripture, what we see in the lives of so many other people is that it's worth it. It's worth it. God gets what he wants done solely through grace. That is what he does. That is who he is. And I think it's so important that we not just read about that, but we experience it. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to enter into a time of prayer and worship. Um, we're going to have some communion up front. We'd love to, if you're just visiting today, we'd love to have you join us in taking communion. It, it's a chance for us to reflect on the means of God's grace, which comes to us through Jesus, um, giving up his body and his blood for us so that we may be people who can experience that grace. We were tuning ourselves back to that every single Sunday when we take communion. So please join us. Um, even if you're not a regular attender here, we just ask that you are a follower of Jesus, someone who, who desires to live in, in that grace. And um, uh, maybe spend some time during the worship asking yourself, like, where are there places where I'm living out of some fear motivation and I'm putting that on to God and I'm ascribing some other pattern to him other than his pattern of operating according to grace? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you, you are unlike anyone else we know, Lord. We can live according to grace, Lord. We, we live out grace in different ways um, to people around us, but we're so inconsistent with it. Yet you, God, as you are known, Lord, you live according to grace. You, you, you give it to us. You, you do it in the whole world, Lord. Everything that we have is a product of your grace in some way. Or creation itself is your grace given to us so that we might experience it and enter into a relationship of trust with you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. If there are places where we're struggling, we have some fears, where we're, we're struggling to take on that grace or to live in trust, we're trying to, to earn or merit the grace that you've already given to us in some way, Lord, reveal that to us so that we might know what that is and we can live in trust instead and we can experience your grace, your transforming, life-giving grace, God, which brings hope out of hopeless situations, brings life out of death, God, I pray that you would help us to be people who live in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.